Welcome to the Open Book Podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of a conversation that was part of a live Open Book Festival that took place in March 2022 at Bertha House in Cape Town. I'm Fasti Karlitz, one of the organizers of the festival. In this discussion, titled A Map of Loss, Rele Bone, Reranzu e Africa, Bungani Kona, and Bridget McNulty speak to Joy Watson about how we survive. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this session on a map of loss. I want to just extend a heartfelt thank you for joining us today. Um, a warm welcome to our very esteemed panel. I feel tremendously honored to be up here with all of you. I'm going to just ask that for the duration of the session that you please um, keep your masks on just so that we adhere to the COVID protocols. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce this um, panel today and um, their books are downstairs if you haven't had a look yet. So on my right, left, whatever, <laughs> is Bridget McNulty, who is a writer, content strategist, and co-founder of Sweet Life, South Africa's largest online diabetes community. Following the loss of her own mother, she penned her first book, The Grief Handbook, which weaves her personal experience with expert psychological insights and practical advice in enabling one to navigate one's way through grief. And then next to Bridget, we have, and I'm sure like, actually none of you need an introduction, but Releboni Rehanzui Africa, who's a writer, editor, and podcast host of the Nine Lives of Depression Survivors. She's an essayist, literacy advocate, life coach, and mental health advocate. Her debut book, Broken Porcelain, which I've just had the joy of reading, is a collection of essays exploring mental health. So... You know, I, I'm, I think that it's particularly apt that we are engaging in a conversation of this nature within the context of the pandemic and the loss that we've all suffered. And I'm talking about loss in the broader sense of the word, that we've lost our way of being in the world. Um, we've lost people. We've lost in terms of our wellness, our mental wellness. Um, but particularly in zoning in today on, on the concept of death, I would like to just you know, think about how often, and Bridget was talking about this earlier, conversations about death and dying are shied away from because they're not um, soothing to the psyche, if one can put it that way. And yet we have to figure out a way to navigate through this conversation because essentially we're all biological and mortal. And so, in finding ways of navigating a conversation about the geography of death, both within the confines of the boundaries of self and then more largely within our communities and society, we have to find ways of making the conversation palatable because it's a, it's a critically important one to have. So I want to, to start today by just asking um, each of you um, about what inspired your, your books. And Bongani, I'm going to start with you. And um, I'm starting with you. Is everything all right? Introduce Bongani. Hi, Bongani. No, no, no. It's okay. <laughs> I was about to say, it's a sincere apologies, but I was about to say, I'm starting with Bongani because I'm particularly enamored with Bongani um, now. 
because he's been exceptionally kind to me recently. Not that the two of you are not kind, <laughs> but Bongani is the, so this is how I'll start your introduction, is the undisputed reigning monarch of kindness and many other things. Um, but Bongani's a writer and also, as I, to, to my great shock, recently discovered historian. Um, he's a content strategist, co um, he's, Lecturer in Department of History at the University of Western Cape. He's been awarded the Ruth First Fellowship and shortlisted, this is a big one, for the Kane Prize for African Writing in 2016. Now, I'm sure that many of you might know Bungani's book, which was such a solace to me, um, Our Ghosts Were Once People, which is available downstairs. And so Bungani, on that note, you know, that, that book for me was such an iridescent, rich, colored, diverse collection of, of, of essays. Um, so tell us a bit about the idea for how that started and what brought you to embark on that project. Okay, uh, firstly, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for the kind words, Joy. And uh, lovely to meet uh, both of you, and thanks, everyone, for, for joining us this afternoon. Uh, so the book, for those who don't know, is called Our Ghosts Were Once People, Stories on Death and Dying. And uh, this is a project that sort of began to take shape in, in 2019 after the tragic, um, tragic murder of a UCT student at Uinene. Uh, so that was sort of like in August 2019. And just seeing the kind of public reaction around that, the kind of um, like real public devastation around that. And so at the time, and for me, my background is in literature, like, um, to be honest, the way I describe myself is I'm a reader. So um, I started uh, thinking about how we could respond to this moment through writing. And in the process of that, like, and poetry plays such a big part in, in, in how I think about things or how I approach life. So I hope this is going to make sense. So one of the poems that, um, there's a poem by an Irish poet called Michael Longley. It's called Ceasefire, and it was signed. Uh, his, Michael Longley is a poet of the Troubles, and the poem he wrote it, it appeared in the Irish Times after the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. And the last, like, the last stanza of that poem is, and sure, I feel like I'm talking too much, forgive me. So the last stanza of that poem, it takes the story of the Odyssey, and Priam, for those who watch the movie Troy, Priam goes to beg Achilles for the body of his son, and Achilles washes the body, he gives it to Priam. And so the last stanza of that poem is, and this is the old Priam, Priam who's talking. It says, I get down on my knees and do what must be done. Kiss Achilles' hand, the killer of my son. So I just kind of, it made me start to think about how do you write death, even in political settings. And round about that time, Habiba Badarun was also like one of the most amazing poets that we have in this country. Um, she had just come out with the history of intimacy. You can correct me if I'm wrong, because the timelines could be wrong. And in the Johannesburg Review of Books, they accepted one of the poems, which is called Promised Land, which is about, which really centers around, there's a musician called Moses Molelekwa, uh, like a famous jazz musician, for those who may not know. But him and his wife died at the same time, or it could have, I think it was a murder, but please don't quote me on that. I know for, <laughs> but I love this poem. She has this line where she says, she starts off talking about Moses and then she moves to Florence, who is Moses' wife. And she says, even here, you're at the end of the story. 
and like that was just like a really kind of incredible thing. So like uh, how people were writing about it. So from those things, it just became, to answer your question, from those things, I felt like, A, can we do this collaboratively? Can we respond to this moment collaboratively? And can we respond to this moment with different modes of writing? So whether it's essays, whether it's uh, poetry, whether it's, um, it's fiction, whether it's photography, can we utilize all of these things to respond to this particular moment? And so that's how the kind of, yeah, book came to be. That was the seed of it, and then that's how the book came to be. I feel like I've talked too much. Thank you. Over to you, friend. <laughs> so, hello, everyone. Can I just say before you talk that your book is somewhat different for those who haven't read it, because it's this beautiful, bold soliloquy of the loss one encounters in living with mental health challenges, with depression and anxiety specifically. So tell us a bit about how you were moved to write this, this very brave piece of beautiful writing. Mm. Um, so when I was first diagnosed, I was diagnosed with depression, severe depression and um, generalized anxiety. Over time, the diagnosis changed. Um, but I realized that when I was first diagnosed, it was, it was a, an exhale for me because I was like, okay, it, you know, Basie Ikpi in her uh, memo and essays, um, I'm telling the truth, but I'm lying. She says it has a name. And I had that, it has a name feeling. But the people around me didn't have that. Um, and I was surprised, uh, I was surprised about the questions I was getting, not just from people who are my mom's age, like boomer age, but also millennials and Gen Zs. And I thought, oh my goodness, nobody knows anything about mental illness. Um, and so just from answer, answering those questions, I thought maybe I should write about this um, because it looks like there's a lot of people, even people who I thought have you know, great, uh, easy access to information and would use that access. Um, even those people are not really like, trying to find answers or trying to understand the lived experiences of people who are living with mental illness. Um, and so at first I had thought I would just write something that's strictly nonfiction. This is what depression is in South Africa. Ah. But um, um, as writing goes, it, it, you know, it just kind of took its a, a turn and I found myself inserting myself a lot in there. Um, so a lot of it is kind of memoir, but also thinking out loud about how, you know, society uh, treats people with mental illness, you know, the stigma around it. Um, I rage a lot at capitalism because it also is part of depression stimuli. Um, so, yeah, I, I was just thinking a lot about how do we treat mental illness? How do we understand it? How do we respond to it? Um, and I then just began to write all of that down. In a particularly timely book in the context of the times that we, we are living in. And then, Bridget, your book um, is a sort of practical way of stepping into the day-to-day -day reality of living with grief and loss. And it was penned on the backbone of your, your mother's passing. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit more about why you thought there was a need for this book and what inspired you? Thanks, Joy, and thank you, everyone, for being here today. Um, so my mom died very suddenly in 2019. She was totally fine, perfectly healthy, and then suddenly started having weird symptoms. She had like sore feet and acid reflux. 
And eventually we got it to the right doctor who, who did all the tests. And from the moment of diagnosis, which was four different types of cancer, till when she died was only 13 days. And my brothers and I were in complete shock. And my dad, we were all just flabbergasted that this could happen. Because even from when we started doing the test, that was like a week before. And our lives felt like they had been completely turned upside down, which I think is a familiar experience with grief, regardless of the length of time beforehand and the, the kind of preparation that you have. I, I don't actually know that, that that helps the feeling much. But I'm a reader and a writer, and so in the wake of my mom dying, I turned to books, because books had always fixed things for me, and I just couldn't find one. I could find a lot of religious texts, which wasn't what I was looking for, and I could find kind of deeply philosophical analyses of what grief is, and I didn't have the brain power to deal with that. And I remember going into a bookstore looking for a book, and, and it felt like there were just too many words on the page. Like, my options were either this book filled with someone else's words, or this book, which is a totally blank journal, and both felt overwhelming. And what I really wanted was someone just to say, in the form of a book, to say, oh, I see you. This is so hard. It's so much harder than anyone told you it was going to be. I'm so sorry. It totally sucks. If you are hating it, that's totally fine. And if you're surprisingly okay, that's totally fine. There's no right or wrong way to do this. But I also wanted space to make it my own. I wanted, like, space to vent. And, and I found that there were these thoughts that I just couldn't get over. Like, my dad said to me the one day that he felt he'd been cheated out of a decade with my mom. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, how am I ever going to be okay with that sentence? And, and, like, dumb things that I just couldn't get over. And I needed something practical to get them out. And so... About a year after that, I, I started getting these ideas, and I didn't tell anyone about them. I don't know if you guys are like this with writing, but I like kept them locked away in my head and like silently scribbling in a journal. And then I told my best friend, who's also a writer, and I decided my dad was having knee surgery in Durban. I would fly to Durban, check him into hospital, and then I would have five glorious days without, I have two young kids, so without children, without work, and I would just bash out a rough draft. And that was on March 20th. 2020, which some of you might recognize <laughs> as the day as I landed in Durban, I checked my dad into hospital, I got back, I was sitting on the veranda with the gin, and my brothers were like, we need to have a family emergency call. And I was like, what do you mean? This is the beginning of my time. And they were like, well, your husband and kids are going to be stuck in a different city unless you get them to you immediately. So we ended up living in Durban for six weeks. And it was so funny because it's my childhood home. It's the... the place that my mom died. We were staying in the room that my mom died in. Her ashes were there, like, watching over me as I wrote. And it was actually so healing to be able to physically be in the place that the worst thing that had ever happened to me had happened mm -hmm. and, and write my way through it. And then, obviously, it takes a while, but, like, the actual book, I was so lucky because I got Lauren Fowler to illustrate it, who's this wonderful illustrator. And the actual physical book is so beautiful. Like, that feels like such a gift to me that my words I did my best with, but like there's, there's like pictures and like coloring in and spaces to write letters and it feels, it feels helpful, which is all I wanted. Thank you. I mean, in fact, I'm going to get you to read an extract from that in a bit, but what I'd like to do now is to sort of delineate the conversation into two. So firstly, focusing on 
us, the ones who are left behind. Mm. And then moving on to talking a bit about the ones who have gone, the, the dead, those who haunt us, those who live with us every day. And Bridget, I'm gonna ask you to read that little extract from, from your book. The Surprising Physicality of Grief. I suppose if anyone had asked me before my mom died, I would have imagined grief to feel like a deep sadness, a cousin of depression. I thought it was all emotion. I was wrong. One of the many things that took me by surprise about grief was how physical it felt. The frequent headaches that wouldn't lift, the bone-weary exhaustion, the relentlessly high blood sugar. It felt to me as if grief was trapped in my cells, as if the pervasive sadness and despair I was feeling had burrowed into my body and taken root there. I've since found out that grief and loss are a stress response, a prolonged, relentless stress response that releases cortisol into your system. Cortisol is known as the fight or flight hormone, the body's main stress hormone that gives us a boost of energy to fight the danger or flee from it. So, you know, that, that piece really sort of sat with me because I lost my dad in lockdown. Mm. And on the one hand, I was this person who was determined to get out of bed every day, to do, to act, to be present in the world. And actually, ridiculously importantly, to be, even though my dad was gone, to be the person he would want me to be yeah. in acting, doing, holding space. But at the same time, I was traversing doing that and sort of, collapsing on the bathroom floor yeah. and that there was this physical sense of enormous fatigue yeah. and brokenness if one can physically manifest brokenness. Yeah. So I want you to just talk to us a bit before I ask Lerboni to add about that notion of the physicality of grief. Yeah. I mean, you talk about in your book, the fog of grief. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. It was actually one of the things I found most helpful was it's, it's not my concept, um, but it's this idea that when someone dies, this fog of grief rolls in. And it's a, it's a physical fog in that you feel you, you are physically not okay. Like you feel exhausted, but also I, mine manifested as headaches. My dad had felt fluey for like six months. My brothers had stomach aches. It's, and it's also physical in that you, you suddenly start doing dumb things like slipping on a bath mat that's always been there or having silly accidents. Or I remember like taking a glass out of the cupboard and it just fell out of my hand and smashed on the floor. And I was like, I, I, like, I didn't do that. I don't know how that happened. So you get like physically clumsy and exhausted. Mentally, the fog feels like it just doesn't, your brain just doesn't work. And I, I was really worried that I would never come back again. Like mm -hmm. I, my brain was so slow and so bogged down and I couldn't understand things. I couldn't, I couldn't read properly and I couldn't talk properly. And I, I was so worried that that was going to be permanent. And then obviously the emotions, which are just so overwhelming. And I think it's so fascinating to me that we don't talk about this more. Because if there's one thing we are all guaranteed of, like in this room and in this world, it's that we're going to lose the people we love. Like mm -hmm. every single one of us is going to go through this. And yet when it comes to talking about grief, we haven't turned the volume up on what it feels like. We're like, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. And then three months later, that's like as much as you're given to be feeling not great. Whereas in my experience, it, I was just shocked by how 
all-encompassing it was. And then when I read this concept, it was, it was in a little booklet by this guy called Kenneth C. Haug, who has no social media presence and no email address. So I haven't even been able to thank him. I can write him a letter. He's in like Ohio in the States. But he wrote about this fog of grief and I, I took a photo of it and sent it to my family and I was like, oh, thank God. Like, we're not going crazy and, and we're not ill. Because that's the other thing, right? Someone oh. dies suddenly with unexplained symptoms. You suddenly have persistent headaches that won't lift and you're like, oh my God, it's me next. My dad has flu, it's COVID. We were like, ah, oh, we lose them both. So I think it's really reassuring to know that this is just normal. Like yeah. we all just feel awful. So Dilaboni, you know, I can draw a direct line between what Bridget's just said and some of the beautiful sentences that you have in your books. I'd like you to talk about specifically the physicality of living with depression and anxiety. I mean, and there's a particularly moving chapter where you talk about having, out of the fear of inflicting self-harm, having to escape out into the night. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, I think there's a part in there where I write that it's like your body is a grave. You're carrying death with you. It was a very striking image that you talked about, that you were actually in the room where your mother died with her ashes there. And, I mean, what, what I'm getting from that is you were very close to death all the time. And that's what depression feels like in your body, you know, like you cannot escape it. Um, I was telling my friend that even in times where you're not really in the depressive fog or like having a severe episode, it feels like it's always there lurking. You know, um, I remember a nurse saying to um, me and some other family members who were visiting um, some patients who were in the TB ward. And so obviously we had to mask up and everything, but it was Christmas, so we had to eat outside, aside from them. And she was just telling us a little bit about how TB works, and she said, um, you could have TB in your blood now and not know it. And then your immune system is compromised and it flares up. And I said, that's exactly what it feels like to live with depression. Like it's always there. And at any moment, something could happen that shakes me and it flares. But there's always that fear that it's in me. It's not going to go away, you know. Um, so it feels like your body is a grave. It's carrying death in you. Um, and in a weird way, you start to have an affinity for it because you live so closely with it. Um, so sometimes you do things like walking out into the middle of the night uh, because you want to escape, you know, or you feel like I just have to do something with this energy, you know. Um, and I didn't know then when I walked out into the night that that's actually one of the symptoms of bipolar depression. Um, I remember watching Insecure and one of the characters had just walked out into the night um, and he had a fight with people, whatever, whatever. And then he comes back to Issa and he says, oh, no, um, I was having an episode and I walked out into the night. And so it feels like that's the kind of way that it manifests in a lot of us is that we, want, we, need, we feel the need to do something, you know, to not contain, but to use the energy in some way because it's a lot for a body to carry, you know. Like she was saying, the cortisol response, like... That's how your body is trying to say, okay, let's deal with this. But it's so very overwhelming that the way in which your body deals with it is not always conducive to wanting to continue to live life as normal. Mm. Gosh, that's, that's, you know, it's so beautifully put. And um, I would like to encourage everybody, especially if, you, if you're battling with anxiety and depression, like that, that chapter, 
the one where um, Bellaboni walks out into the night is just, it's particularly, particularly beautifully crafted and just touched so many parts of me. So thank you for, for writing that. Bongani, I want to move to the notion of grief being something that's not linear, but that it's cyclical. And, you know, as, as you were saying earlier to us about how people sort of expect that there's a time period and then you're done and you expect to function in society and that this thing is in the past. And I, I recall after, you know, um, losing my dad, and this was after the first year, that there'd be moments where there would be the smell of a particular food that he would, he would make or I'd be walking on Seapoint Promenade where we would walk together and he would do his funny kind of old man walk like super fast where I'm lagging behind and come whining about when can we get to the part where we have a glass of wine and breakfast and stuff. And by the way, I wasn't five at the time, I was 45. <laughs> and just, the, you know, this, this, and I was talking to my sister about it in this week, like living in the sense that there's always this hologram of, for me, both my mom and my dad, they are everywhere I go, they're there, they're real. I feel, feel them, see them. And I'm not talking about it like in any kind of spiritual way with a connection with an afterlife, that they're so deeply immersed in every fiber of my being that it's, it's overwhelming in some ways. And so Pungani, I want to move to your story in particular in, in our ghosts were once people, where your grandfather was killed in 1979. And, you know, particularly with, with that kind of death, um, there's a personal cost, right, to the, to the family and the, the people who are left behind. But there is a more political cost, a broader societal cost in a death of that nature. And I was just interested in hearing your thoughts, particularly about, you know, a, a death such as the death of your grandfather, how that definitely never can be something that has, is time-bound and it's done and it's linear, but that we have to absorb and constantly remember and hold within us. Sure, thank you so much. Uh, somehow I just feel like saying, I'm not a real doctor, but I play one on TV, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so just, just to get it out there that... <laughs> Um, I don't feel like I'm an expert, so I just wanted, but thank you so much for the question, and I'll do my best to, I'll do my best to answer it, like, okay, so I'm thinking in particular about two things, there's a, I think she's a psychologist, Pauline Voss, have you heard of her? Uh, she speaks about this concept of ambiguous loss for when, um, so I think she came to the project, she's, um, she's from the US, and she came to the term through working with um, survive, uh, Vietnam War soldiers or families of Vietnam War soldiers. I, I could be wrong, you can, you can correct me because I saw you nod there. And some, some of these families, the person had not come back from, 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 from Vietnam or not come back from the war front. So you are in this ambiguous place where the person is both alive or dead and just like how that, um, so yeah, so she comes with this idea of ambiguous loss and it was something that I was thinking about. Then I just, oh man, <laughs> I should write questions down. But the other thing that I'm also thinking about because I actually never met, I never met my, my grandfather, but I, I guess the other thing that I'm thinking about is there's a book called Post Memory, I think the generation of post memory about 
Um, the third generation of children whose parents had lived through the Holocaust. But this experience that you haven't gone through still defines you so much more. Like, what does that mean? Like, people hang on to that. This violence, you haven't experienced it. I guess in South Africa, this is something that's, like, so clear. I think if you go to Rose Must Fall or whatever, and I get when you get people saying, but these people are born free, why are they acting like, but that you're forgetting the work of memory, you're forgetting also lived conditions, but how that memory is still very much alive. So that, so I'm trying to join two particular concepts, and I've already, we're talking about this earlier, that at some point, somebody's gonna say, what was the question again? <laughs> and okay, so to come back to the specific essay in the book, um, it's a story that uh, for, because of how traumatic it is, um, there were so many silences around it when I was kind of growing up. And, you know, silences, and for me, it's things I'm invested in is what happens to a past that's not properly digested, whether it's personally, whether it's in, within families, whether within, within, within nations. And I think for me, and I could be completely wrong with this, is that it somehow demands, uh, it demands something from the descendants. It demands something from the descendants. And you can't just, I guess you can't just say move on, right? Because this thing hasn't been digested. And part of the project of writing is in some ways to come back to the idea of time is in a way I want to, is to try and repair time, right? Because what happens with, I'm going to keep quiet here because I'm going to lose my job. They're going to say, what the hell are you talking about? Um, in a way, time raptures, right? Time raptures when there's a kind of, um, when societies go through kind of, oh, what am I trying to say? I think, okay. Oof. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I think the last thing I'll say there, because it's still kind of a very difficult story to talk about it, but the last thing I will say, and hopefully somebody will take something away from this, I was reading a book called A Primer for Forgetting, Getting Past the Past, by a guy called Lewis Hyde, and in there, it's a book that is just a loose book, filled with scrapbooks, but in there is a Facebook post by a woman from... Uh, is it Native American community? She has these dreams that haunt her about this genocide that took place. And eventually, because she goes, eventually she goes to the place that's in her dreams and she says to the ancestors, um, whoa. Whew. I'll come back to it, sorry. Um, I know especially in black families, silence is kind of a standard. Mm. Um, in my book, I write that it was the fifth family member and it was so tangible that it felt like you could feel it. It was, you know, part of the family structure. Um, and silence takes so much from us because it takes our right to witness away. Mm. Um, and that's part of ma the making of the self, your, the right to witness, to express, to feel. Mm. Um, and so I think it ruptures time, as you were saying, because we are not able to be our complete selves uh, or move forward in any kind of way because there's a whole chunk of us missing. Um, and what you were saying about, you know, generations feeling um, what previous generations have felt, even though they haven't 
really lived through it is actually true. Um, on my podcast, I had a, a psychologist and researcher say to me that um, at any given point in time, any of us have about um, the DNA makeup of 4,000 of our ancestors inside of us. Um, and so we're walking around with, like, I'm, like I was saying, centuries of ghosts in our blood um, because there's so much of who they were that's still inside of us. And so you feel the things that they felt or you feel connected to them in some way and you don't know how. It's because there's actual chemistry and, you know, physicality and science inside of your body that has connected you to them. Um, and yeah. there's almost an obligation to carry Absolutely. out the story of your ancestors. Absolutely. Mm. My best friend's a third-generation Holocaust survivor, so her gran was in the camps and survived. And on the outside now, she's a prosperous American who lives like this perfectly comfortable middle-class life and is not at all prejudiced against or anything, but she carries it, and it's, it's cellular that she carries yeah. it, and it's, mm. it's, ident it's, like, it's led to her choices in career and her choices in partner and her choices mm. where she needs to live. Like, it's not something that you can just be like, oh, that was a couple decades ago. Mm. It's, it's very deep. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've kind of composed myself, and thank you very much for the support. Uh, so she goes to this place and says to the ancestors, um, please, you need to let us go because so that you can travel in your own path and we can travel in our own path. If you don't let us go, we ourselves are going to complete the job of genocide that the American government started way back then so that we need to travel in each other's times, you in your own time. And I found that very beautiful. Yeah. But just to come back to ambiguous loss, because one of the pieces in the book is by uh, Madeleine Fullard, who's the head of the National Missing Persons Task Team, mm. which yes. for those who don't know, was started in, uh, on recommendation of the TRC to kind of find the remains of the people who went missing between 1960 and 1994. So she mm. writes the piece about her work. And in, we've spoken since, we've subsequently kept talking after the project. And what's striking is that you have people who know that the person is no longer alive, but they don't have the remains. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the past, in a way, like, it can't be closed, it can't mm -hmm. be finished. Mm -hmm. And some, some cases go back to, like, in the mid-60s. Yeah. And I'm thinking in particular of one woman in particular who we've been working with. Her dad disappeared in, or his dad, she was told that the father is no longer alive in 1965 or 66. This is now, we're talking 50 years of been looking for the remains and like that kind of stuff about, in a way you can't, the subtitle of Lewis Hyde's book, it's a primer for the forgetting is getting past the past, but you can't get past the past if it's exactly. not, exactly. I guess, yeah, digested. So, and we've stepped beautifully into that, into the, you know, the, the, the narrative about the importance of remembering the dead. I was relatively recently with Joanne, over there, Joe, wave so that everybody can see you, <laughs> in conversation with Joanne Joseph on her book, Children of Sugarcane, where she said something that sort of really sat with me. Um, and it was about how, you know, our forefathers, foremothers, uh, and I'm talking specifically for those of us who identify as black, that they lived within the context of a political system that meant that the sort of victories and the triumphs that they have had, that they had on a day-to-day -day basis were largely small victories and small triumphs. 
And that, you know, within the context of sort of systemic oppression, um, that, that system crushed them in some ways until it fell, right? But their single biggest victory is the fact that they survived. And Joe, you put it so beautifully when you said they not only survived, but they made choices to ensure the longevity of their line. And, and when you said that, you know, I reflected on how I sit here in a middle-class positionality with an education where those before me did not have that. Mm -hmm. And so how in grief and loss, there's this additional layer of what it means to lose people who did not have and to weigh up the fact that they made choices to ensure the longevity of their line that you might have further down the line. Mm -hmm. And I just want to ask any of you, if you want to come in here to talk about why that remembering is so important. I think remembering gives us a sense of closure. Um, like you were saying about the missing remains, I think Lumumba's killers, they you know, completely disinte disintegrated his body with acid after firing him and killing him um, by gunfire. And one of them took a trophy, which was a tooth, I think. Um, and he took it with him to Belgium. And for years, I think maybe for over 60 years or something, Juliana and her family were fighting for, can we have that last part of my father's remains back? And I think they only recently got it back. But it shows you just how much we need what we see as ours, you know, the people who are already part of us, mm -hmm. to kind of embrace them for the last time, um, be with them for the last time, but also know that we have laid them to rest in a place where, in a loving way, mm -hmm. you know, um, it gives us that closure, it gives us a sense of peace, but also it's homage, you know, as mm -hmm. Americans say, it's homage. Oh <laughs> it's homage to them um, to say, this is my last act of love for you, you know, to give you a funeral that is dignified, um, where people who love you can gather and say, you know, here lies the remains of so-and-so. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why maybe um, in a lot of cultures, funerals are so like huge and ritualized that there's all these things that happen around it. And a lot of us who buried people over Zoom during mm -hmm. COVID, I think, you know, I was very, very um, critical of the way in which black people especially, you know, bury people because I was like, it's so exhausting for the family. And yes, it still is. I don't want to romanticize it in any way, but I found myself missing that sense of we've gathered here yeah. this week there are people who have taken time, even like Ogogo who come and sit on the mat for the week, you know, like there's just something powerful about that. Life has to stop, you know, um, whereas a Zoom you session, you're watching, yes, yeah, you're watching the funeral over Zoom and it's, there's something about you that doesn't connect with it because yeah. also what we know about screens, especially if we grew up, you know, in the 90s and before that, is that what we're watching is, kind of fictionalized unless it's the news. So a part of us kind of doesn't believe that it's happening. Mm -hmm. We need something in real time, something to touch, to feel. We need the energy, you know, we need our bodies to experience mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise we just, you know, we just carry inside of us the sense of disbelief mm -hmm. and delayed grief. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think just having a part of the people who we lost,
does something in us that is very essential to healing. I like it's, the idea of keeping the, those we've lost present somehow. Yeah. And it's, it's not always easy. And I think if there's been trauma in your life, then that's obviously a, a whole other layer that makes it so much more difficult. But I try to speak of my mom in the present tense, especially to my kids. And like I, I, I tell the stories that she told me when I was younger. We, we cook her recipes. I wear her clothes and jewelry. I look alarmingly like her, which is also very strange when you really miss someone and then you look in the mirror and you're like, oh. and we used to wear the same, like we have a couple of pictures of us wearing the same outfits and the same jewelry and, and it's very uncanny, I think, for others also to look at me, especially as I get older now and, and she stayed the same age. But I do think there's something really beautiful about, as you said, there needs to be this, this moment of letting go of their physicality and then is there a way to weave their being like the bits that made them special and, and unique and, and mm. who they were, is there a way to weave them in the present tense rather than it always having to be this very solemn, like past tense memorialization? Mm. If there's a way to weave them into daily life, I, I find that very comforting. Mm. That's so useful. And, and your book also talks beautifully about the notion of complicated grief, yeah. which you know is, an, is another layer of that. I think that this leads us nicely into a reading from, from your book, Bongani, if, if you would, wouldn't mind. Um, yeah, that's no, it's, <laughs> it's totally okay. Um, I've been paid to be here. No, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding, sorry. Facts. <laughs> I'm, I'm contractually obliged. To you, so. um, but just on, to come back to the question of remembering, just touching on it, like maybe from a societal perspective, so after the General Franco's dictatorship in Spain, does anybody know about this, that they signed the Pact of Forgetting, that everybody would, what had happened on during the dictatorship would completely forget about it. There would be amnesty and would start afresh. And of course, that it never kind of works because you're asking us to forget, really. Like, so I'm asking like, for societies as well, it's important, not only what you remember, but how we remember. And that, yeah, that's an important process for What Bongani is about to read speaks to that. The notion of rend rendering the dead invisible and this sort of cultural obsession with moving on. Um, so if you'd, if you'd please be so kind as to read. Okay. Um, so this is actually from an essay by Lucien Bestal and it's called uh, All the Dead. And it's uh, just the paragraph, right? Just the paragraph, please. Yeah. Um, I return to the refrain. We do not leave bodies where they fall. The undertaker is called the coroner, the cleaners if needed. Once removed from the scene, the body is prepared hurriedly again for burial or cremation, prepared to be forever out of sight. Funerals are arranged, memorial programs printed. The sooner the body can be disposed of, the sooner the living can get on with the work of mourning, but why all this haste? What could be more decent than to allow the dead to live among us for a short while at least? We should spend more time among the dead, to be still beside their stillness, to study their faces, to share their silence, to become familiar with death and what death looks like, if, if not in life, then in images. It's, it's so beautifully put. Um... You know, and, and I think that somewhere else in that same essay, Lucien talks about 
how in the, I think it's the mid-1800s, it was um, vogue for, in Europe for people to take photographs with the dead, so they'd sort of prop them up and take these pictures as a way of immortalizing them, um, and how, you know, this, with the times have changed and there's this cultural shift to the, that, that the thought of that is sort of morbid right now, you know, it's not something that, that anybody would want to be doing, and yet, at that point in time, it was something that, that gave comfort. Um, so I, 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 I'm going to shift a bit and ask Leleboni to, because I, I don't want us to lose time without you having read from, from your book. Would you mind to? Um, so I'm reading from a chapter called, Hello Death, My Dear Friend, My, dear, my Old Friend. Um, ghosts, at the least, help us acknowledge that we once loved. They remind us that our love was strong enough to survive even death, that we carry love through time, even as time itself is carried through love. We sometimes mark time using love, my first boyfriend, my first kiss, my first big birthday party, and sometimes we mark love using time, yesterday, today, tomorrow. Perhaps my grandmother knew that ghosts cannot stand electricity because they scorn the fact that we have lost the ability to identify and exist with mystery. But the ghosts within us fear no thing. They are the unresolved hurts and unhealed circumstances of our past. They are the offenses that cause us to see the world through our traumas and pain. They are the brokenness that clings to bloodlines from the father to the third and fourth generations. They are other people's stuff and our own stuff. They are a love so thick it hangs in the air but cannot be touched because of trauma's unforgiving malice. The elders survive, but they didn't make it through unscathed. Our generation inherited the traumas and tribulations of those who came before us, of our parents, not to throw shade at our grandmothers and grandfathers. The old folks did the best they could with what they knew, but we cannot carry their brokennesses in our own. Our shoulders weren't meant for the weight of the world, and no matter how strong the ghosts in the bloodline, we will not live our parents' tragedies, but we will carry, but we sure will carry their love forever. So, so they, I mean, that is, is such a, a touching piece and, you know, speaking to intergenerational trauma and how we pass grief, loss and trauma mm -hmm. down the line. I mean, there's an, another point in the book, Relaboni, where you talk about so living in, in trauma, in anxiety, in depression, and how on the one hand, our society, there are not spaces that are conducive to having conversations about that. But at the same time, there's a tension between that and the performative aspects of talking about anxiety and depression, particularly on platforms such as social media. Mm. You know, will you just tell us a bit about how you, it's, it's such, such, a profound chapter in the book. I'd like you to share just a little bit about that. Yeah. So the chapter is called Everybody's Depressed, but like in an Instagrammable way. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually wrote it out of anger yeah. um, because I had had an ex-friend of mine who had posted a picture and she was like standing against the wall and she looked very chic and but she had like a sad countenance, you know, but it looks very like Instagrammable, right? Um, and she had recently told another friend of ours that she has depression. 
Um, and she had just been a jerk and an ass to me for like the past six months or so. So she was <laughs> extremely toxic, but was using depression as an excuse. Um, and so I looked at her and I thought, I know this person personally, and she's posting about the fact that she is depressed, but she has done no work to kind of, you know, find ways to help herself to survive through it. And it wasn't because she was afraid or she didn't know. It was just because she was fine with people feeling pity for her um, and her getting likes and, you know, hearts and we're with you, love and light, sis. But, you know, wasn't so much invested in doing the actual work of healing, which is terrifying. Um, and so... I started to see a lot of that, you know, and notice a lot of that on Instagram, on Twitter, and seeing how people would tweet about, um, oh, my toxic trait is like not taking my medication in the morning, <laughs> you know, and um, I thought there's something very crude about it, something very off-putting because you realize that when people take it that lightly or want to aestheticize it in some way, um, all the people who are actually dealing with that and cannot even get themselves to get out of bed, they are silenced because they feel like, well, my depression is not put together enough for me to present to the world in a beautifully packaged way. Um, and so when I said depression is not an aesthetic, it was me really railing and saying, guys, this is serious. It's cool that we're talking more about it, but can we also realize that Depression, mental illness is extremely serious. And when we, I mean, it's good to laugh because it's kind of a coping mechanism. But at which point do we stop laughing and deal and starting to deal? You know, um, at which point is our laughing actually trying to sidestep and not deal with the issue mm -hmm. and just kind of walk away from it? Um, so I think talking about it, being vocal about it is extremely important. But we also need to make space for the people who don't have a beautiful way to put it, who's expression is ugly, is vulgar even, you know? Mm -hmm. Like what you were saying about uh, people taking pictures with the dead um, in the 80s, because there's something vulgar about depression, you know? Um, I say to people, we are in a crisis. Depression has, like one of the symptoms of depression is death. Now, what sickness do you know that has a symptom like death? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and that to me was just like, I feel like everything must stop, you know? It's serious, and it mustn't just happen when um, somebody famous dies, and then we kind of, okay, it's a two-week news cycle, then we move on. It feels like it should be something that happens constantly, that we're talking about, that we're living with it, because we're living with it. Yeah. Um, my friend Rofiwa Maneta, I think he has a, an essay in your, in your book as well. He was saying he hopes that we get to the point where talking about depression... Um, and mental illness is so normalized that it's like talking about the flu. You know, you don't kind of announce that, hey, I'm living with the flu. I'm a flu advocate because it's like, okay, people are no longer dying of the flu. So it's not taboo. Um, and hopefully we get to the point where it's normalized to talk about death. It's normalized to talk about mental illness. Um, and we treat it with the heaviness and the weight that it deserves. And so, so your words are so important and, you know, particularly the fact that you highlight that your agenda has to be pure in mm. talking about it. Mm. So I'm, I'm shocked to see that we're running so rapidly out of time. Where's it gone? <laughs> but Bridget, you know, what I found useful, and I read your book 
after I'd lost my dad. Mm. And I lost my dad and then sort of six months later, a very dear friend committed suicide. And I sort of went through the motions of doing what I did and and then I went to get a mental health intervention saying, nothing's wrong with me, I'm just here, in case something might one day be wrong with me. (laughs) And this person said, everything is very wrong with you right now, there's a big problem here. And I remember getting this diagnosis of of PTSD, which on the one Mm. hand was shocking, how is that possible? But secondly, such a relief that somebody gave a label and gave me permission to feel what I was feeling. And just very briefly, can you tell us why you touched on PTSD Mm. in the book? So I was was very lucky to have a wonderful editor, um, Anya Hayes. She's in the UK. And she read the first draft of the book and she was like, look, I, I really love it. She resonated. She'd lost her best friend. But she said... Your approach is generally, so just to give some backstory for those who haven't read it, so my mom died very suddenly, which was very traumatic, and then six weeks later, my husband was hit by a car, and so I was, like, wrenched, and he's fine, thank goodness. He did actually break his back and and fracture his his wrist, but I was wrenched out of being able to grieve in, like, the normal manner, Mm. and I was back to, like, bathing someone like I'd been bathing my mom and, and waking in the night to turn someone and give them pain meds and all of that, and... My approach was, you suck it up, take a deep breath, take every day at a time and get through it. And so in the book, I dealt with it in like two paragraphs. And I was like, life happens, soz, best of luck. (laughs) And my editor was like, not particularly helpful. Could we maybe dig a little deeper? Mm -hmm. And it was only when I had to do the research that I realized that it was complicated grief, which is when, when your normal grieving process is interrupted, like by a pandemic or not being able to mourn properly or be around physical people when, when someone dies. Um, or, and there's all like an echo of someone else dying soon afterwards also makes a complicated grief. It's like an aftershock of an earthquake. Mm. And what happens is that you are suffering from PTSD. And I found it so fascinating because in my head, PTSD was something that soldiers got when they came back from war. And that was like the end of the conversation. <laughs> I didn't know it was actually something that we could have but then when I and trauma felt so hectic to Mm. me and at the same time when I took my husband in for a surgery I couldn't breathe as I was walking down the corridor because life hospitals around the country look exactly the same because the the decor was the same and I I have worked on hospital trauma for the last two years because people don't actually go to hospital to die apparently but I was convinced that they did yeah and And I think it's so helpful, as you say, to put a name on it and to say, like, these big feelings, no matter what flavor they are, are not just like you not being strong enough and you not being able to deal. When huge things happen to you, there are names for them and and there is help. And I think that was such a relief. And it's so weird to me that it only came when I wrote the book that I was like, oh, wait, I can actually get help for this. This is not just something you take a deep breath and get on with. And I mean, and, you know, in saying that, you you just bring in that aspect, the importance of, of getting help. Yeah. And mm. I, I just want to point out and, and thank each of you that, you know, even though I read your book after um, loss, for each, in reading each of your stories, there was a sense that these were resources. Mm. It was help mm. in navigating my way through my own grief and loss. 
So in closing, I want to try and think about the gains that come from loss. And I, so I've been thinking about this recently and I sort of penned a very vomity mess of thoughts in this week's Daily Maverick. <laughs> it's, it's a huge mess, but I was trying to name what, what we gain. Mm. And can I start with you, Bongani? And what yeah. do you think you gain from loss or from writing, from, from this piece of art that you've put out? I was going to say, with my experience of answering questions, I don't think you want me to do that right now. No, I'm kidding. Um, just two things, if I may, and I hope it answers. The one is, can I just read the poem at the back of the book? Sure. As a way of closing. Please. And then the second thing is, like, I grew up in a generation where we used to make mixtapes. And, like... <laughs> good old days. Good old days. And tied to that is that I love literary journals and, like, this thing is practically, if you think about it, it's just a mixtape. And uh-huh. the idea is that, you know, you make it out of love, love and then it. you kind of give it to the person and be like, yo, I hope, you know, this this helps you on whatever way you are, whatever journey you're on. So that's the whole idea. So, And then the poem at the end of the book is by Robert Beryl, who uh, lives in the Eastern Cape, used to teach at the university formerly known as Rhodes, but the poem is called My Death, right? And he says... I want to die in bed or sitting on a chair, like an old car engine slipping out of gear, stop eating altogether like my dog Max when he died, Mm. call enemies and friends to say goodbye. Here's my will signed and witnessed. Forget about a coffin, use a plank, put me in the ground and plant a a Celtus tree that'll have my bones to thank. I want above all else to be awake, my fire to burn completely into ash. And if there's anywhere to go, I'll be going there. You know I won't be coming back. Mm. Wow. wow, beautiful. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, I think to uh, go back to what you guys are saying about experiencing uh, trauma in the wake of death, poet Vuyelwa Maluleka says, death attacks the dying and the ones they leave behind. Um, and so I think I've gained a resilience. Um, Lucille Clifton at the end of her poem, Won't You Celebrate With Me, says, come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. And so because when you're in the fog of depression, you're really in it and it's tough. When I find moments to celebrate, I just go all out. Mm-hmm. You know, um, anyone who's on my WhatsApp can tell you how ridiculous I get when I listen to a really good song and I'm just like, yes, I love it. I'm going to dance to it. I'm going to do this. So finding the meaningful um, or the, the meaning in little things or enjoyment in little things, because I know that it won't be forever. It's kind of like Someday it's going to be hard. So when it's good, live in it. When it's hard, let it pass through you. You know, when it's good, hold on to it. When it's hard, let it pass through you. So I think that's what I've gained is realizing the balance of life, that there's the good, the bad, the mundane, and all of it is part of living. And so just living day to day, moment by moment, and breathing. I'm going to encourage you to keep doing that because for those of you who haven't read Redaborni's book, um, she starts it in a way that just sort of blows your mind. I'm not, I'm not giving too much away, but it's literally the first page. If you go down and pick it up, it's the first thing you get to see. So it's sort of big giveaway, sorry. But she starts with how surviving a car accident and her disappointment in not having died. And 
So I want to celebrate the game that you hear, yeah. that in this moment you're alive and that we get to benefit from this gigantic monumental mind of yours. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Bridget. I mean, guys, could you have set me up for favor <laughs> any more resoundingly? I don't have a goosebumps comb to end us off. Um, I think for me, the gain is this, right? It's being able to talk about it. Um, I felt so alone after my mom died and, and I couldn't find anything that was a conversation. And in writing the book, I, I worked through a lot of that for myself. And the response I've had from people has just been so beautiful. And I, and I think we all need to be talking about all of this more. And just to pick up what Rilla Bonnet was saying, one of the concepts I found most helpful, and I still find most helpful, was of slices of joy. So instead of us looking in life for like the big things to look forward to, like the big holiday and I don't know, when we get a raise and when we find our life partner, you look for these tiny three second slices of joy in every day. And it can be finding a great song. It can be a sip of water when you're really thirsty. It can be lying down in bed after a busy day and that feeling of like, ah, oh, and just noticing those and, and letting those kind of build the fabric of our lives rather than it having to be anything big and impressive. And I focused on that a lot after my mom died because grief is so overwhelming that finding like capital H happiness isn't going to happen, but it's actually now just become a habit. And I feel very grateful to have found a lot of slices of joy, like being here with all of you today, all of you today. Thank you. Well, you know, on that note, I want to thank each of you for being a little slice of joy. I mean, a big slice of joy mm -hmm. in my day. Um, and thank you to the audience. Um, it's been just very appreciative that you chose to, to share this discussion with us today. Thank you so much. The three amazing books are downstairs on sale. Please do have a look. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to the organizers, too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. book is Broken Porcelain. Pungani Corner's book is How Ghosts Were Once People. And Bridget McNulty's book is The Grief Handbook. Joy Watson's book is called The Other Me. They are all available at the book lounge. To find out more, go to our website, openbookfestival.co.za. And if you want to be informed about future events before they happen, sign up for our newsletter. This event was made possible by the support of the Department of Sports, Arts and Culture, as well as the Heinrich Bull Foundation. Thanks for listening.